0: Uh, But if you will take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 24, we're going to continue our study through the book of Isaiah. That is what the pastoral team or the preaching team has been uh, focused on for the last several weeks. And today we are going to consider peace in the day of judgment. We just finished the season of the Passion and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So um, being in that period of the year in which we focus on that, it reminds us that Christ took our judgment and provided us peace. So hopefully it won't be a foreign concept or maybe something that's not related to what we'll look at today to consider at at one and the same time peace and judgment as a work of God. A thought that I'd like for us to consider, I believe you have it in your worship guide, but also uh, we'll have it on the screen here, is just to keep in mind that God will show himself faithful as savior to those who wait for him in view of that day of judgment. God will show himself faithful as savior to those who wait for him in view of the day of judgment. Today we'll be looking at a particular day of judgment. Last week Pastor Charlie left us in 1 John chapter 2 in verse 17 in which he was encouraging us to not love the world because the world's passing away. It's fleeting, uh, not to mention that it is empty. And so uh, as he was preaching through the the first part of the second chapter, he ended us with that thought. And Lord willing, I assume that he will probably pick up with verse 18 as he uh, continues his study through the book of, or the letter of First John, in which we will be considering uh, the last hour. And I thought how fitting it would be for us to consider Isaiah chapter 24 through 27, in light of the fact that we live in a world that's passing away, and we are living in the last hour, and we should live in accordance to that understanding. Uh, and it brings us to, again, the passage of Scripture in which we are thinking about the judgment of God. I was wisely encouraged at a preaching seminar many years ago to, when you're approaching the text, to not do so with a grid. And what was meant by that is don't try to apply your grid or your way of thinking to the Scriptures because you may do more damage to the scriptures reading into it because of what you believe, rather than reading the scriptures and pulling out of it what it intends to say. Now, sometimes that's very difficult to do. For someone like myself, who was trained at a Bible college that had a very, very rigid grid, and growing up in a church where that grid was used every Sunday or every time I heard the word priest, it's really difficult for me to approach a passage of scripture without a grid. Now over the years God has been gracious and has allowed me to even understand that the things that I was so certain about the things that I was so dogmatic about the things that I knew I had an understanding and couldn't figure out why no one else could see it the way I saw it I've relaxed And those things I have somewhat loosened my grip on, even though it still guides my thinking to a great degree. I have found things that I can be more sure of, things that are more clearly taught, things that are more clear in Scripture, those things I cling to. And so when I come to a passage of Scripture where, depending on what study Bible you use or what commentary you use, you're confused because... There are some who are going to read this as something that has already taken place. And there are going to be some who are going to look at this as something that is yet to come. And these are good people on both sides. Therefore, I have done something that Tim Martin has been waiting for me to do from the very first time I preached, and that is to present to you a chart. (laughs) The grid that I represent and has been so much a part of my past has bestowed upon me many charts. And we often have some humorous conversation, and then I go home and cry because I'm sensitive to it, about just how useless these charts often are. However, the chart that has been provided for you in your worship guide, and I believe we're also going to look at it in just a minute on the screen after we look at a passage of Scripture, hopefully will help us. We're not going to talk about the charts today in detail as much as I would love to. If you have about two or three days that you have, don't have anything else planned, make an arrangement with me and we will talk about charts for about two or three days and the things that have given us the charts. However, we have a much more important issue to talk about today, but hopefully these charts will help you understand the way people approach Scripture. Uh, We have already been involved in passages of Scripture where, in this book of Isaiah, that there are different ways of looking at it. There are different interpretations. There are different applications. But we come again to, I think, at a a good point where in the study of 1 John and and even here in this particular passage of Isaiah, to really kind of consider so that we have a good understanding of the context. Again, this isn't going to be our substance. It's just simply hope, I hope that it will provide a context of understanding or at least understand why other people understand it differently than the way we understand it. But yet at the same time understand it to a point where it's productive and profitable for us as the Word of God is intended to be. So with that being said, hopefully that's all the confusion that we'll experience the rest of the day. But what I would like for you to take notice of is there, there, there's a chart there again on your worship guide that gives you three different views of the kingdom. The kingdom. Now, a passage of scripture that leads us to have different views is often going to be cited from Revelation chapter 20, which I think we're going to have this on the screen. So yes, it's in bold print so you can read all of it, right? Uh, I can't read it, so I'm going to have to turn in my Bible to Revelation chapter 20, in which I will be reading from the New American Standard. So, if you will, follow along as we read just a few verses here in Revelation chapter 20, particularly as it's there in verses beginning in verse 1. John, in revealing this very controversial and very differing interpretive book, says in verse 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon and the serpent of old who is the devil and satan and bound him for a thousand years since he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed after these things he must be released for a short time Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been uh, beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed." this is the first resurrection blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection over these the second death has no power but they will be priests of God in Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years when the thousand years are completed Satan will be released from his prison he will come out to deceive the nations and on and on and on and that's as far as we'll go because that's the last mention of the thousand years Revelation chapter 20 but you see that repeated a thousand years Now, when you look at scripture, and my intention is to sort of keep this at 25 cent words and and, and avoid the dollar words, is to understand that there are differing views on when that kingdom, or how that kingdom, will manifest itself. Uh, You have those who believe, uh, which on the first, on the chart you have, Uh, who would be considered amillennialists. Now, millennialism isn't the study of those who are a certain age group in the day in which we live that we get irritated with, right? Um, I'm sorry, did I say irritation? Uh, Impatient. Uh, I mean, uh, there's something along with that. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about millennium in that which is a thousand-year period of time. An amillennialist, as the word would suggest, that A really removes the, the literal idea of it. In other words, it negates the millennial, 1, 000, literal 1,000 year period. So we would consider this group of interpreters as amillennialists. In other words, they don't believe that there is a literal 1,000 year reign of Christ on this earth. Primarily, this is gonna be a view which uh, is gonna look at it as a, in an allegorical sense. Uh, it's gonna look at it as many would use as a spiritualized It's not a literal thousand years. It's just a phrase that we use to describe a period of time in which Christ is ruling from heaven over the affairs of life as well as over every distinct thing. That would be distinct from those who would consider themselves post-millennialists. And if you're familiar with the term that's prefix post that just simply means that which is going to happen uh the millennium is going to happen or christ is going to come i should say i'm going to get this straight here in a second i'll be able to explain my view very well uh but post-millennium is going to be when christ comes at the end of a thousand year reign not again a literal thousand years it's just a figurative term but christ will come back after that period is over and then there will be those who are, I mean, uh, those who would consider themselves premillennialists who believe that Jesus Christ will return and will at that time set up a thousand year period in which he will reign on the earth. I thought it was interesting and I was reminded of it again as we were singing our songs that primarily the songs that we sang today were written by people who disagree with me on. on these views. Many of them would consider themselves to be amillennialists. Those who believe that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ is a spiritualized period of time and then he'll return at the end and then we'll go into eternity. Uh, But the way you look at scripture, the way you look at this, not only will it determine how you look at ethnic Israel, because that's really what it boils down to is if you believe that the promises in the Old Testament will have a literal fulfillment, or whether once God has pronounced judgment and has fulfilled it in ethnic Israel, in other words, the nation, the people, the Jewish people of Israel, then all the spiritual blessings that he promised them will now be applied to what we call the church. To those who interpret it that way, see really no distinction. Even though there's an understanding of a national... People that are physical descendants of Abraham, that the people of God are the people of God, regardless of what you call them. Now, those who are post millennialists uh, are somewhere in between, uh, that they still believe that there are promises, but at the same time, most of it is going to be a spiritual application. Whereas those who believe in a premillennial return, that is, Jesus Christ will return to set up his kingdom believes that there is still a future for the physical descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people. And within this group, you have those who even wanted to splinter even more. Many of you might be familiar, if you're not familiar, I, I would believe that most of you are probably influenced greatly by dispensationalism, which takes pre-millennialism even further in that there's going to be a pre-tribulational return of Christ or a rapture of the church to take the church home and then he's going to come back after the tribulational period. And there's a lot of stuff, again, that we could fill up two or three weekend seminars, not just one. But the only reason why I bring this up is so that you can understand as we approach Isaiah chapter 24 through 27 that there are differing views. And there have been differing views from the first century on. There are those who have been more influential over the church age. Some who have become more prominent in recent days. But there have always been differing views at, at precisely what is meant. Now the one thing that all three of these views have in common that we need to make sure we understand is that we all believe that Jesus Christ is coming back physically. Now, there are those groups that call themselves Christians that believe that Jesus Christ is now just a spiritual being and when when the Bible talks, it is purely in allegorical terms. In other words, it really doesn't mean anything physically. It's just some sort of spiritual idea. But all three groups that I just mentioned believe that Jesus Christ will return to this earth just as it was promised to us when he ascended to heaven. But the reason why it makes a difference is because in Isaiah chapter 24... We're told about devastation. We're told about judgment. We're told in some terms, depending on what view you take, this could be apocalyptic. This could be the end days. This could be the way things will wind up for the world in which we live as we know it. So when we consider these verses and these four chapters, that we do so understanding that there's going to be a differing view. However, I hope that as it's sort of indicated in your worship guide, that there are at least four things that we can take away from this, regardless of what your view on it is, that should govern and influence our life as long as we live on on this planet. So as we do so, let's first look in chapter 24, verse 1, where... It says, Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest, and the servant like his master, and the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. One thing that we can know for sure, that the Lord has spoken the word of judgment. Now you may look at this, and depending on what translation you have, what study Bible you have in your lap, or what commentary you're familiar with, you may look and say, you know, it's very clear. It says right there, the earth will be laid waste. We do have to keep in mind that throughout Scripture, that term, the earth, or... Literally, the land is used in different contexts. It could be used in the context of just the land in which we are familiar with, but at the same time, it can also be translated into the entire world, the globe. And so we have to study and we have to read and we have to consider and compare it with other texts to come to a point where we are at least comfortable with where we are in trusting the Word of God. God's not the author of confusion. Unfortunately, we are imperfect and we will have different perspectives and we need to make sure we understand it as we approach this passage. But but again, what may be clear to me may not be so clear to others, again, because of how we get to this point. From my perspective, I think, as we have been looking at different lands in which Isaiah specifically mentions them by name and now he all of a sudden mentions the earth, for me, that makes it, seem like he's talking about the whole earth like the whole globe but at the same time i have to understand that in isaiah's day he could be looking at the whole earth as being the world in which they knew it today my world is different i can get on the internet i can see anything hear anything know anything about any part of the world today because it not just because people began traveling everywhere in a ship but that started it all when they discovered that the world was a much bigger place than what they thought it was, there was a time in which they thought their world was it. And we've come to Scripture from time to time. We will have to read it that way. That when Caesar Augustus said that all the world should be taxed, uh, the Chinese weren't included in that. For those who were in living in South America, they weren't included in that. But at the same time, it was... George, the, the Caesar's world, which was the Roman Empire, right? So in that sense we have to understand that Scripture does use that term in that sense. But either way, when we read, we understand that the Word has spoken or the Lord has spoken His word of judgment. Uh, and because of that we can trust that in whatever way, whether this judgment has already been fulfilled, in the nations of Babylon or Egypt or Assyria, or if it's something to come later on for the whole world, when God says he will judge, he will judge. Let's take a moment now to look at just the severity of this judgment. If look in verse 5 and 6. Uh, the earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, and they are, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. It's not just that God pronounces judgment on things because He doesn't like them, because He's mean, or He's just you know wants to bully people around. The Lord has this, has declared judgment on anyone who is guilty of transgressing His laws, violating His statutes, or breaking a covenant with Him. And so, therefore, we understand that the Lord speaks judgment; it will affect. Those who are guilty. And who is guilty? Well, if we back up to what I was reading in verse 2. It doesn't matter if you're the master or the servant. It doesn't matter if you're the priest or the worshiper. It doesn't matter if you're the buyer or the seller or the lender or the borrower. The creditor or the It doesn't matter where you lie in all the relationships. Everybody is going to be subject to Judgment. The second thing that we can see, another aspect of this judgment, is found in verses 7 through 13. And that it will be immune from the world or the worldly respite. If you think about the ways in which you are tempted to, or the way you hear the world approach stress and the problems that they have in life, much of it is found in these verses. Isaiah says, the new moon, or in light of this judgment, the new wine mourns, the vine decays, all the merry-hearted sigh, the gaiety of tambourine ceases, the noise of revelers stops, the gaiety of the harp ceases, they do not drink wine with song, strong drink is better to those who drink it. The city of chaos is broken down, every house is shut up so that none may enter, there is an outcry in the streets concerning the wine, all joy turns to gloom, the gaiety of the earth is banished. There will be no party fun enough to erase the effects of God's judgment. There is no drunkenness. There is no stupor that will distract you sufficiently enough from God's judgment. There is no music that you can listen to so loudly or dance to so joyfully There's no company that you can keep that will be so rich and full that will distract you and keep you from avoiding God's judgment. It is that severe. And whatever the world will offer to soothe itself from it will not be effective. The third thing, it will result in a remnant who rejoice. Verse 13 we read, For thus it will be in the midst of the earth among the peoples, as the shaking of an olive tree and the gleanings from a grape harvest is over. They raise their voices. They shout for joy. They cry out from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. Therefore glorify the Lord in the east. The name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear songs. Glory to the righteous one. So just like at harvest time when they shake the olive tree to get the olives out, They never empty the tree out. They just shake as much as they can because if you sit here and spend all this time getting every olive out, you're going to lose some of your harvest. You only have a certain amount of time to gather it. And in that same sense, there is in the judgment of God going to be a remnant of people left over that when they look at what God has done in judgment, they will rejoice in His great mercy and His grace. Now again, you can look at this in a temporal sense in Isaiah's day in which when the people were taken out from the land through exile in years to come. And then when they returned, there were some people that were left over and they were rejoicing that they were still there and that God was still great. Or if you look at this in a situation when those of us who have been saved by the grace of God and God judges the world, that we will be the remnant that is left over to praise him through song. There are, again, different ways of looking at this, but either way, there will be those who will be remaining after the judgment of God who will rejoice. And in verse 17 through 23, we see another aspect. It will be, an inescapable, it will be inescapable in that day. Listen to the, the intensity of this. Terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. Then it will be he that flees the report of disaster will fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. For the windows above are opened, and the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard and totters like a shack. For the transgression is heavy upon it and it will fall never to rise again. Can you imagine hearing bad news? Understanding that you know, the Martians are coming. <clears throat> and you get word of it early enough that before the Martians show up, you have a chance to run away. But unbeknownst to you, the Martians have already set up a pit so that as you're running away, you fall into it but it hasn't captured all of your strength yet, you still have the will and the ability to climb out of that pit to get free from the trap that they've set for you only to find out that once you climbed out of the pit, there's a snare. Why is that? Because there's a window open that sees everything going on and there will be no escape. There's those who live in this world who look at and think about the judgment of God and while they may give some credibility and credence to it, they think, oh, you know, after all, I'm really not that bad. I'm not going to be the one being judged. I'm going to be able to escape. I'm going to be able to elude it. That preacher can't see everything that I'm doing. Those church people don't know everything that I'm thinking. And that's not the point. The point is the judge has an open window to everything. And there will be nothing that will escape. This judgment that God will bring is, is terrible. It is severe and it is real. Why? Because he has spoken it and it will happen. However, we see in chapter 25, as we were reading in our responsive reading today, the Lord has planned these wonderful things. Oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. You see, God's not writing the script as he goes along. God's not trying to get away to the the beach to get some creative ideas that when he gets back, he's going to say, you know what? Here's the next chapter of life of mankind. Oops, I didn't realize that this was going to happen. I didn't realize that nation was going to become strong. I didn't realize that these people were going to be depleted. I've got to come up with another scheme. No. Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you and give you thanks to your name. Why? Because you've worked wonders, wonders that you planned before they ever happened. All of them. And he did so, and this is where I really appreciate the new said, with perfect faithfulness. Perfect faithfulness. I have constructed out in my garden. While I have had a garden for many years since we moved back to Winston-Salem, this year I decided I was going to do some planter boxes, keep the snails out, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, and so I was sitting it in place, and Amy came out and said, That looks really great, but is it straight? Because <laughs> I've got it within some a picket fence out in my backyard to kind of keep the dog away, because my dog likes to dig. And so I was like, Well, I've got it within the The fence, straight, but unfortunately, she said, it still looks like it's lingual. Well, that's because the box isn't square. That's just me, I'm sorry. Uh, As much as I would like to have a squared garden box, it's not. Uh, Don't feel sorry for me. I I didn't mean to put Amy on the spot because you're probably elbowing your husband and saying, yeah, right, I I told you. It's a man thing. Uh, But some of you men are great carpenters and very great craftsmen and you do everything perfectly. And I don't. However, God does. And what he has planned, he has planned with perfection. With that in mind, I want you to just kind of take a look with me for just a moment at the judgment that we've talked about. And And even in the following verses, he continues to describe this terrible judgment. Consider the difference between what God has planned in judgment for those who are going to be the recipients of that and for those of us, or for those at least, who will not experience that judgment because they're his people. Look at 20, chapter 25, verse 6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples of this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. Now, do you recall what chapter 24 spoke about those who in this time of judgment, they're not even going to want their wine. It's going to be bitter to them. They're not going to find any pleasure in drinking their wine, that which normally would bring them some, some peace and, and, and some, at least some serenity in the midst of the harshest times. They're not going to find any there in God's judgment. However, God is going to make sure that those who are His will be, as it were, drinking not only just wine, but they're going to be drinking the wine at its Perfection. Now for someone who doesn't consume wine, I can't really I can only hope that it's going to be like the, the best sparkling Welch's grape juice that I've ever had. It, because for me, that tastes really good. I've never found any solace from it, it just maybe a little bit of, you know, you know, burp once in a while. But that's but it but it tastes great. But for those of you or, or anyone who consumes wine here there's a difference that you can tell cheap from that which is really prepared well whatever you do with wine <laughs> and I'm trying not to be you know, overly spiritual here by saying I don't drink it but you take what you will from that uh, but I don't, I don't get it but I understand the Bible uses that language often and I can only imagine That whatever the world uses in a cheap way just to sort of get itself over until the next day to get itself through its problem, whatever it uses, to them it won't even be useful. But to God, he's going to bring you to a feast in which you're going to be drinking it as it ought to be. Thinking maybe it tastes a little bit like what Jesus made out of water at that wedding in Cana. Because he just shot right through all the process. He said, you know, water, wine. It wasn't any time. It wasn't in a barrel. It wasn't, you know, you didn't have to sniff it around, whatever you do. Uh, It was just people were remarking it. Wow. You saved the best for the last. Well, guess what? Jesus is going to save the best for the last. Sorry, Joel Osteen. But think about that, that when it comes to wine for those who were used to finding solace in it, it's really going to be God's people who are going to enjoy it. Chapter twenty five verses seven through nine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations, and he will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from the faces, and he will remove the reproach of the people from the people of uh, reproach of his people from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. There we got the Lord speaking again about what he's going to do. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab will be trodden down. There's two different mountains here. There's a mountain in which God is going to bring his people. And on this mountain, he's going to remove this veil that's called death. He's going to remove this veil that's called sin. Yet over here on this mountain, his hand is going to rest on it as he's about to squash it. In judgment. You see a comparison of two different mountains. We have a comparison with, with wine. We have a comparison with the mountain. Have a comparison with the city. Look in chapter 26. Verse 1-4 through four. In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. What makes it strong? For he sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. The one that remains faithful. The steadfast of mine you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. There's going to be a city that God's people will dwell in. There's going to be a safe haven. It's going to be a place where, because they're trusting in that city, because they're trusting in God, their rock, their mind will be at peace. Because they're safely within the haven of peace. However, when we look in chapter 24, that city was going to be destroyed. It wasn't going to be rebuilt. Whether you're looking at the boundaries or the structures, either word that you want to look at in the Hebrew, they're all going to be destroyed but yet God's city will stand. Verse 19 of chapter 26. Look at verse 14 to begin with. The dead will not live. The departed spirits will not rise. Therefore you have punished and destroyed them, and you have wiped out all remembrance of them. That's pretty serious. He's talking about those he's judging and those who will not live again. However, if you go to verse 19... Isaiah says you're dead what? <laughs> will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust wake up and shout for joy. For your dew is a dew of the dawn and the earth will give birth in the departed spirits. In other words we will be raised to life. And as we talked about earlier that their land is utterly emptied There in verse 15, Isaiah says, You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have extended all the borders of the land. There's just a great contrast in between those who are going to be receiving the judgment of God and to those who are God's people. And here are at least five different ways in which we can compare the differences with the same examples, with the same analogy, if you will. And it's because the Lord has planned these things. It's not just because it's going to work out. It's not because we got lucky. It's not because we just happened to be... It's because God is sovereign and he planned it and he will perform it. Which leads us to the third thing that we can be sure of when it comes to God's judgment. is that the Lord is coming to perform it in that day. Verse 21. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place. Does that remind you of when you were a little kid? And maybe one of your parents said, your other parent's going to be here soon. He's coming out of his place. Well, the Bible says that the Lord is about to come out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. I just happen to believe that this is talking about Jesus Christ is going to be coming out from heaven, and he will come and judge the nations. I realize that there are other interpretations of this, but I, don't, I can't help but see this of any other way to know that the Lord is coming to perform it. If you want to try to spiritually apply that to something, more power to you, but I'm sorry. I read too many other things in Scripture that make it clear to me that Jesus Christ is coming back And he will judge the world. And he will do so in person. He will do so personally. And moving on to the last, the Lord will be worshipped. That's the culmination of it all, folks. Whatever God is doing, whatever God will do, whenever he does it, it is all with the same goal in mind. For his exaltation. Look in verse or chapter 27. In that day, again, you, you may have heard me read this a few times. You may have read it for yourself. In that day, a lot's talking about in that day. Talking about the day of judgment. In that day, the Lord will punish. Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great mighty sword. Even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. If you want to make a connection with that in Revelation chapter 20, or if you just want to look at this as a symbolic term for evil, either way, I'm good with that. Because I think they're both the same thing. But in that day, the vineyard of wine, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it. I will guard it night and day. I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them. I would burn them completely or let him rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout and they will fill the whole world with fruit. Like the striking of him who has struck them, he has struck them. Or like the slaughter of slain, have they been slain? You contended with them by banishing them, by driving them away. With his fierce wind, he has expelled them on the day of the east wind. Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven and will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin. When he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones, when ashram and incense altars will not stand, for the fortified city is isolated, a homestead forlorn and forsaken like the desert, there the calf will graze, and there it will lie down and feed on its branches. When its limbs are dry, they are broken off. Women come and make a fire with them, and they, for they are not a people of discernment. Therefore, their maker will not have compassion on them, and their creator will not be gracious to them. In that day, the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about also in that day that the great trumpet will be blown, and those who are perishing in the land of Assyria, and those who are scattered in the land of Egypt, will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain of Jerusalem, or at Jerusalem. Number one in this aspect of God being worshipped, evil will be defeated. Verse 1 makes it very clear that he will destroy evil. Verses 2 through 6 says that he will tend his vineyard. In other words, he is cultivating worshipers. He is tending this this vineyard. And he just dares briars to come and try to keep him from doing it. He just dares weeds from coming in and trying to choke out the growth. Because he's, he's he's a gardener. He's the keeper of it. He's going to get rid of all the idolatry. Verses 7 through 11 talk about even to the point of taking all of these idols that are built out of stone and reducing to nothing but chalk stone, lying around on the ground useless and he will bring his people to the holy mountain. There are so many ways in which we could have spent more time on these verses but hopefully in the time that we've spent you have seen at least Four different things that you can trust God for. Number one, he's spoken the word of judgment and it's going to happen. We've seen it happen historically in the text and we still have it yet to be. He has spoken it. God has planned these wonderful things so that even while he is pronouncing judgment upon the world, he is at the same time revealing that there is a remnant of those who will be left because of his grace and mercy to worship him. And they will rejoice. They will sing. Pastor Charlie was talking about he and Tim going to the, the Gather for the Gospel Conference this past week. And one of the highlights of that as I've been in years past is the music and the singing. You're overwhelmed with the truthfulness of this, the words in which you're singing. That's the reason why we try to enrich our worship service with songs, with words that you will, it will magnify your appreciation for what gets done because that's who we are. Reminding you what Jesus Christ has planned for us. What Jesus Christ is doing for us. And what Jesus Christ will continue to do for us. Knowing that the Lord will be coming to perform it. Jesus Christ is coming back. We need to be ready. We don't run away from Him because He's coming back. But the Bible makes it very clear that we need to be running to Him. And thanks be to God that we do so because His grace draws us. That He pursues us. That even when we are running away from Him, even though we want to avoid Him because we in our conscience understands that He is a rightful judge. That He is gracious and merciful and He pursues us and He is coming one day to judge those who refuse Him. And that ultimately the Lord will be worshiped. Whether you believe that there's going to be a literal 1,000 year reign of Christ on the face of this earth or not. We can get along. We can have conversations about it. We can look through some more charts. We can compare different commentaries. We We can think through it logically. But one thing that I cannot agree with someone on is that is that the point of our existence leads us to something other than worship that's all of eternity whenever it starts <laughs> makes no matter to me I know that I have been created and have been redeemed and will enjoy worship forever and ever of the risen lamb but that's what I should be doing today And thankfully, as we consider what Jesus Christ has done for us, it's not by mere chance that we know him. It's because God will show himself faithful as Savior to those who will wait for him in view of the day of judgment. Not because you're looking for a day of judgment and you're hoping that you're going to be on the side. But as you look at the reality of a day of judgment when every person will give an account and will speak before God whether or not they were in the Lamb's book of life. Give an account for their life. an answer. In light of that day of judgment. I know that my Redeemer lives. And I will see him. In the last day. I know that God will show himself faithful to me because I'm waiting for him to deliver me from this body of death. I'm waiting for him to deliver me from this world of sin. I'm waiting for him to deliver me into life everlasting that only he can provide and only he will sustain because he is that life. And because of that, as I have those who will lead us in singing, keep that in mind. Jesus, your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. Right?